0: The informational meeting is not this Thursday, the next one, the seventh. And uh, if you ever are inviting me over to your place, you need to make sure I have the week right. I actually showed up at Ken and Carey's and wondered why no one else was there and they graciously invited me in and sat me down. I thought, she's pretty cool, I don't smell anything cooking. And uh, we would talk for a while and finally I said, what time are people coming? They said, it's next week okay now why did we um why did we read for our first two lessons from uh that familiar text genesis 12 the call of abraham and then the great commission at the end of matthew 28 because you and i can know the scriptures we can know them clearly and even at one level believe them and say we want to obey them, and yet never have the reality of those scriptures connect to our own lives, where we actually think about other people and make our plans. And uh, we are going to be, or at least the plan is, and I want to get the date right, the Sunday following Labor Day weekend, so in two Sundays, I plan to start uh, a study through 1 Peter. We've looked at John in 1st John we've looked at one of Paul's letters so I thought next we'd hear from the great pillar apostle uh, Simon Peter and so we'll be studying his first letter but I wanted first this Sunday to do something a little bit introductory to the person of Peter whom we if you've grown up in church at one level you know him really well but I would suggest that as well as Peter would have known the story of Abraham and his call. And Peter was there with Jesus when Jesus gave the Great Commission. Nonetheless, Peter, leader of the band in Jerusalem, one who at the end of Acts chapter 9 had just actually been used by God to perform two miracles on the order of the kinds of miracles that Jesus performed. I mean, we would see this as Peter at the apex of his ministry. And yet we come to Acts chapter 10, and we discover that he still, at one level, didn't even get it. And so we know Acts chapter 10 as the conversion of Cornelius, and we'll look at that, but I want us, after that, to look again and see chapter 10 as the conversion, in a very deep sense, of Simon Peter. Cornelius was a man of love and mercy and compassion who needed to be converted to a man of faith. Peter was a mighty man of faith who needed to be converted to a man of love and compassion. So I. I was tempted to read this entire very long uh, chapter because it so beautifully tells this story but I'm just going to take parts of it. So if you'd start with me, Acts chapter 10 beginning at verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's uh, about three o'clock in the afternoon. They counted from six in the morning. So around three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? Caesarea is up a little further to the north on the coast of the Mediterranean and then you're going south down to about the middle of the country to get to Joppa, it's also on the sea. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, about noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and there came a voice to him rise Peter kill and eat but Peter said by no means Lord for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. In other words these foods weren't kosher. The laws of Israel said that Peter was not to eat anything that he sees in this sheep. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he'd seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask, Whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And then, of course, Peter goes down, meets them, invites them in. They spend the night with him. And then uh, the next day he heads out with them for Joppa and meets Uh, or rather from Joppa to uh, Caesarea. And he meets Cornelius, Cornelius falls on his face to worship him, Peter. I love the thing, it said Peter picks him up basically, which means, you know, Centurion was probably a big guy, but Peter was the big fisherman. And it sounds as though he just reached down, picked him up, put him back on his feet, and he said, do not worship me, I'm a man like you. What do you want? The guy tells him everything that we've just read, And then Peter says, okay. In fact, Peter does not begin graciously. Even at this point, he says, you know that it's not really right for a Jewish guy to come in and pollute himself by being with you Gentiles, but God's told me I have to do it, so here I am. (laughs) Go to verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, and listen carefully to what he said. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now let me tell you, if any young man answered that question, if he was asked on a Presbyterian exam, who is acceptable to God? And he said, God has no favorites, and in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what's right is acceptable to him, he'd be failed. But that's what Peter said, not because we're saved by works, but as we go on, we're going to see how crucial this passage is for us, perhaps, to have our own conversion to mission, okay. And then Peter preaches the gospel, which we hopefully preach here in word, in deed, in song, Every Sunday, he tells him of Jesus, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and of his commission to go and preach the gospel. And verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, in other words, the other Jewish guys with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Thank God for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text calls into question I think, many of our views about who's in relationship with God and who isn't, and what that looks like. I've been very helped over the years in thinking about this by something I read by the great mission uh, anthropologist, he was born in India, grew up there, and then came to the States, Paul Hebert, son of missionaries, and became one of the great mission anthropologists of the 20th and early 21st century and uh, one of the works that he wrote that helped me a lot was in understanding a text like this and in understanding in a new way the people of God and even I'd go so far as to say how to understand and read the Bible and how to do theology so that's a big thing but what is it? He actually took it from mathematical set theory, if you remember set theory. A set is a group of anything, could be numbers, numbers of a particular kind, could be nails, could be pennies, could be people, but it's a set that is gathered together in a group. And there are different kinds of set theory. Two, there are really three kinds, two that relate to us, the third that I think too often relates to me, Uh, there are bounded sets and a bounded set has a border a fence around it you draw a circle and you've got all these numbers everything inside that circle is in the set maybe you say all even numbers the set of all even numbers so they're in here any odd numbers they're out they they can't get into that set because they don't belong it's a bounded set and that is how most Christians think about the church as a bounded set we say what do I have to believe? What do I have to do to get from the outside in? How do I become a part of this? And so we all kind of disagree on our where we put that fence and so we've got different denominations. But Hebert said a biblical view of things is what's called a centered set and a centered set is defined by what's moving toward it. You are part of that set if you are moving toward the center which, in our case, is Christ. And if you are moving toward him, you are part of that set. You might have been born in a Christian home. You might know it all. You might have been baptized, catechized, simonized. I mean, you've been through it all. You know all the right answers. But truth be told, your back is toward Christ. And though to all appearances you're inside that border, you are moving slowly away from Him. And Hebert said the Bible understands people by the direction that they're moving, whether they are responding to the call of God, however far away they are, or whether they are rejecting the call whenever it comes up against what they want. There is a third kind of set that I too often identify with. Hebert didn't talk about it. It's called a fuzzy set. And it's because sometimes you're in, sometimes you're out. And uh, sometimes I start thinking bounded set and then no, centered set. And then, you know, just could I, could I have a break and do something else? So I want us first to think for a few minutes about Cornelius. What was Cornelius? What kind of a person was he? Well, I already said it. This guy was an extraordinary lover of people. Here he was in charge of this, this, I don't know the size of the Roman cohorts, but he's one of the officers, he is in a position of authority, and he has every right just to exploit the people under his control, and instead we read that they revered him, The, the Jewish people hated the Romans, they hated the taxes they had to pay, they hated being oppressed and under Roman government, they hated that the priestly class had made a deal, the Sadducees with Rome, to stay in power and that they loved the Pharisees because the Pharisees at least were reactive against the Roman authorities. But they hated them and yet we read that the Jewish people loved this guy and they said this is a man who gives alms to our poor and our hurting people. He's a a God-fearer. That's how he's described here. He fears God and spends all his time praying and seeking God. And so we see this person with an incredible hunger and thirst for the things of God, seeking him and, and trying to be good and compassionate to those whom he could so easily have exploited and oppressed. What was he not? He wasn't a man of faith because he was desperately trying to find what do I need to do in order to know the living God? And so his his face was turned toward God in prayer. His life was turned toward the things that God clearly in his word and in every human heart whether they know the scriptures or not knows is compassionate and right and good at least for those who are near you but he didn't yet know God and so when we ask the question what about people that don't know God what about people that didn't grow up in a Christian home don't live in a Christian culture don't you know what about all these people well I think the answer is in that remarkable statement of Peter. It had just dawned on Peter for the first time. Let me read it again. Verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand. And and I think he means, oh, goodness. How did I miss this? That God shows no partiality. Peter, how could you not have understood the story of Abraham, the story of Israel, the story of Jesus, the Great Commission. And how could we so often miss the deeper meaning of the doctrine of election and predestination, which most of us have been taught as bound and set. Who's in? Those of us whom God chose. Who's out? Those he didn't choose. Whereas in the Bible, predestination and election is a missional calling. The great elect man of the Old Testament was Abraham. God said, Abraham, I've called you for the sake of the nations. I've called you, made you mine. You are my elect one, so that through you, all the nations might know me and know my blessing. I am going to tell my story through you. Israel was the great elect people of God And Moses said to them (laughs) twice, God did not choose you because you're the best people around. You are an unrighteous, stiff-necked people. He didn't choose you because you're great. You're just this little struggling group of people. He chose you for his own purposes, for his own glory. You are to be a light to whom? To the nations. You exist for the sake of the nations. God didn't choose you and say, I love you. I don't love them. He said, I chose you for them. And when Israel would lose that vision and think it was all about them, God would deliver them over to the nations to be carried away into captivity because they'd lost their whole reason for being. They thought it was about them rather than that God had made them His for the sake of all those who didn't yet know Him. And so Jesus, in that... Matthew 28 text, his final words in Matthew, excuse me, Mike, um, in his final words in, in Matthew says, all authority on the heaven and earth has been given to me, and you, as you are going, make disciples of whom? Of all nations. Peter was there. Again, in Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus in one of his appearances to them, talking to them in the same way. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, then out in Judea, then Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, Peter had heard this from Jesus, and yet Peter had stayed in Jerusalem. He'd at one point gone up to Samaria. He'd crossed one line, preached to the Samaritans, laid hands on them, because that work had already begun by Philip. And Philip said, please come up, they haven't received the Holy Spirit, so John and Peter went up, laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. But he didn't want to go to the Gentiles. He still thought it was all about Israel, and if you want to know Israel's Messiah, you have to be circumcised. You have to become like us. That was what Paul was always fighting in his conflict with the Jerusalem church was this idea that you had to become a, a proselyte Jew. If you were Gentile, you first had to become Jewish to then be, know the grace of God. So he doesn't want to go to him. But what does God do for Cornelius? He gives him a vision, vision of an angel telling him, This is what you're to do, you're to to send to Joppa to the home of Simon the Tanner, for one, Simon called Peter. Have him come, he will tell you what you must do. I don't know how many of you keep up with current events and missions around the world, but one of the great uh, movements in our day that's not much reported in the press because of all the political ramifications is that within the tragedy of the huge migrations of people uh, having to move out of war zones, so many of those are in the Middle East that you've had Muslims moving, trying to get into Europe for the most part and and Muslims in, in parts of Northern Africa pressing up and trying to get into Europe. What's often not reported is the enormous numbers of Muslims who are, once they are out of their home setting where it might cost them their life, begin to hear about Christianity. And I have read that in those who have interviewed them, that in over a quarter of those cases, it started with a vision. Started with a vision. I actually heard from, we had one young woman in Knoxville who gave her testimony and she said she'd finally gotten out of the Middle East, gotten to England. She was standing in the shower and was overwhelmed. Heard a voice say to her, there is one who will wash your sins away. Because she said she was standing there in the shower, just consumed with guilt about this sense that I can never do it right, I can never please God. And it was overwhelming to her. And so, I love this. She went to her imam, her Muslim religious leader, and said... You know, I had a vision and I heard a voice that there was one who could wash my sins away. And he just said, oh, that would be Isa. That's what he does. That's Jesus. That would be Isa. So she, you know, figured I better find an Isa follower. But here's the key. The vision does not bring the gospel. The vision gets attention. The vision directs. God has willed that people, even those who have been gifted with visions, which most of us have not been, that they can only hear the gospel from one of us. They are always to send for someone who will come and tell you the words of life. And that's what every Muslim testimony that I have read, former Muslim, be- or Muslim background believer, uh, They all testify that the vision sent them to someone who could tell them the story of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's because he's entrusted that story to you and me. He has no other strategy, if I can speak, Father, forgive me, in terms of God, as though God's thinking of strategies and, you know, but that's God's plan. That's his only plan, is through the likes of you and me. And Peter did not yet get that. Look with me quickly at Peter. Peter was a man of tremendous faith. I mean, from, but Jesus knew that his struggle was love. Isn't that why at the end of John's gospel and the, the, uh, we have the beautiful prologue and then we've got that beautiful, uh, what do you call it at the end? The chapter 21 uh, where they go fishing and then Jesus meets them. And he takes Peter aside. Peter has denied him three times. And now three times, Jesus says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Because he had said, even if they all deny you and run from you, I won't. I love you more than they do. Do you? Do you really love me more than they do? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. And then he asks him again, Simon, do you love me? Lord I do love you, tend my sheep, Simon do you love me, Lord you know everything, you know that I love you, feed my sheep. Jesus knew that Peter's problem was always going to be love, he was great about boasting, He was now ready to go after Pentecost, he received the Spirit, he was out there, he preached the great sermon. And he even said at the end of the sermon, when they said, what must we do? He said, repent and be baptized every one of you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So he preached it, he was a man of faith. Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, except I don't want to do it because I don't like Gentiles. And so he needed a different kind of conversion. What did God do to this man of faith? Gave him a vision (laughs) and then said some guys are going to, he didn't tell him about Cornelius, he just gave him a vision three times. Peter was a hard-headed guy like me. Everything had to come in three. (laughs) Three times, do you love me? You know, three times he had the vision. Then it went up, and he's wondering what was that about? You know, is it indigestion? What? You know. And then the spirit says to him, "There's some men downstairs. Go with them." And he does. And then he hears the call of God through Cornelius. When Cornelius says, "I received a vision." And the angel said that I was to send for you, that you are the one that's going to tell me what I so desperately want to know. How can I know the living God? I've done everything I know to do. I pray constantly. I give. I'm just pouring myself out here, but I, I still don't know God. And Peter realizes God's grace is a lot greater and wider than mine. And he preaches the gospel. He tells them of Jesus. And Cornelius is baptized. Why do I go through all that? Just for this reason. How does God tend to work in our lives? Uh, I don't think I've ever had a vision of this sort. If I have, I've had some pretty spooky things happen, uh, but not with that kind of clarity. I've had things where I knew that God was in it and was nudging me and pushing me in directions I didn't want to go, speaking to me of things that I remember the guy I trained under. He was an old Princeton guy and as straight arrow and old line Presbyterian as you want, but sometimes I'd walk in his study to see him, he'd be sitting there really. He looked like Churchill and he's sitting there like that. I remember saying to him, what's wrong, Roger? He said, God's been talking to me and I don't like his tone of voice. have you ever had that the Lord will meet those who are seeking him he will speak to us sometimes we won't like his tone of voice but he's getting our attention but he will always meet us through each other we have to be together in this thing that's really hard for me the older I get I love people I love being with people but my batteries really run down fast now and I, I love most being alone because when I'm alone, I'm, I'm with my favorite guy, you know? <laughs> just that time of life. Maybe some of you are that way. So I need to push myself because I could just fall into that. And that's not how we're to live. We're members of the body of Christ. And we have to have those connections that keep us with each other. So, what kind of conversion might you need today? Perhaps you're still struggling with faith and the Lord wants you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to know the power of His life and death and resurrection victory at work in your life. Cry out to Him for it, He will do it because He has no favorites and in every nation, those who love him and are just trying to do the right thing, he's favorable toward. That doesn't save us. Christ saves us, but that pleases God, and he will meet you. He will meet you. He will get someone in your life, if that's what you desire, who will tell you how to walk with him and how to know him. But perhaps you've walked with him a long time. You do know him, and yet, maybe like me, you're a little bit too much fuzzy set. You're in, you're out, you're up, you're down, you're all around the town and you need to fall in love again, not just with the Lord, but with if you're a conservative Republican, with that person who comes to try to talk you into voting for Biden. And if you're a Democrat, when you see somebody in a red MAGA hat, what do you think? Can you look with tenderness and say, Lord, I don't know anything about this person or his story, but would you, would you show your grace? Would you pour out your grace on him? Would you save him? Would you make him your child? That's what we're supposed to be in the midst of this world, not all caught up in the stuff that everybody else is caught up. We're here for them. Abraham was here for them, Israel was here for them, Jesus came for them. Okay, Father, help us increasingly to live for them, for the other, especially the other, that apart from your grace we might see as unclean and untouchable. Thank you that we who by nature are unclean and untouchable have known the loving touch of our great Savior and Redeemer, your Son, Jesus. So fill us afresh with your Spirit in Jesus' name. Would you take just a moment and respond in your heart to whatever God's Spirit might be saying to you this morning?